probably talking about Powerball. Powerball right now is at like $1.6 billion. Oh, okay. You had to go Powerball. What are the odds on Powerball? Do you know off the top of your head? So one in a billion or something? 100%. Some, someone's going to win it 100% of the time. <laughs> This podcast contains the arguably witty banter of two friends, Skippy and Dougals, that like to debate about investing. The content is intended to be entertaining and for informational purposes only, not investment advice. You should do your own research and consult a financial professional before using any of the information in this podcast, and especially before investing. I got to kick this thing off with a joke. Is no joke silence? You can't, you, you, can't, you can't even acknowledge my joke. So first of all, credit where credit's due. I stole this from a newsletter. I don't remember which one though, so I can't even give the credit the credits due. But but there is a newsletter out there. I stole this joke. This is a nerdy, beyond nerdy like investment joke. But I saw this, and there's a little bit of uh of learning in here too. So you ready for this? Yeah. What do you call a stock that's down ninety seven point six eight percent? Carvana. No, you're supposed to say, I don't know what. <laughs> I don't know what. A stock that was down 96.19%, but fell another 39%. <laughs> and that stock is Carvana. So I read this and I was like, oh, I love this. And and the uh the learning is, you know, we've we've uh we've talked about if a stock is down 80% and then goes down 90%, it's dropped 50%, right? It got it, cut in half. Yeah, from it got the cut 80% in half. mark. Exactly. Yeah. If a stock is down 96.19% and goes to 97.68% down, it has lost another 39%. Like, I mean, mathematically, this is, you know, all very obvious, but, but it's a, it gets to the, how far a stock is down is not a reason to buy point, right? That these, once you start to get to those levels, like another one percentage point down is actually pretty massive for your, your overall return. So anyway, that's my joke. Abs- of the day. Yeah, absolutely massive. Terrible joke. Um, thanks for starting <laughs> the pot off on that. If you like terrible jokes like that, send Dougal's an email and tell him how terrible it is. Actually, go rate and review the podcast. If you rate the podcast this week and shoot us a email saying that you did so, uh, we will send you stickers because Ooh. I'm in a giving mood. Ooh, so so generous. Yeah, Love let's it. make that happen. Yeah, it's an interesting point. I don't want to get too deep into Nerdville to start off, but one of the things you can do if you're trying to catch, people jokingly call that trying to catch a falling knife. And as a value investor, that's like kind of where I live is I'm looking at stuff that's falling rapidly because that's when the valuation starts to be appealing, right? So I don't like momentum investing, um, but one thing you can do if you find stocks that are tantalizingly cheap is you can wait for momentum trends to break in a pro- positive direction, um, which provides some shelter against that. You know, the stock's down 80% and then it gets cut in half. And so ultimately the stock's down 90%. I just think that's worth mentioning. What's more interesting than that, Diggles, is winning the lottery. Don't you agree? I, I mean, who wouldn't agree? Especially Powerball right now. You're probably talking about Powerball. Powerball right now is at like $1.6 billion. Oh, okay. You had to go Powerball. What are the odds on Powerball? Do you know off the top of your head? So one in a billion or something? 100%. Some, someone's going to win it 100% of the time. <laughs> First of all, that's not true. <laughs> Second of all, let's say the odds of winning Powerball are one in a million, which are not. Do you know the best analogy for this? Go I go into your house and I know you're a huge Harry Potter fan. And if not, I'm making that up for this story. And I'm like, Dougals, go in the other room. I'm going to pick from all the Harry Potter books. I'm going to pick one book. I'm going to open up to one chapter, find one page, and I'm going to circle one word on in one of those books. I do that. Then I leave the room. You have to go to that same set of Harry Potter books, pick the same book, same page, same word. That's basically a one in a million chance. That's not happening. The odds of winning Powerball are way less than that. So you're talking like walking into, I don't know, a small library maybe. And us both picking the same word in order to win Powerball. It's just not going to happen. It seems like you're all you're doing is negging the lottery at this point. It seemed like you're about to praise the lottery. Well, there's a guy in China. We don't actually know his name who won lottery jackpot worth $30.6 million. Uh, that's the U.S. equivalent. And what's so special about this guy, Douglas? 
So there are two things that are special, but they all fall under the theme of no one can know that I won this, including my own family. This man showed up in like a a baseball mascot uniform in order to collect the check. So you you know the big check that they have that they give out for, you know, all the big winning sweepstakes and whatnot. He's he's on one side holding the check with like the mayor of his town or whatever on the other side. And he's wearing this like baseball mascot uniform. And then he says, and I'm never going to tell my wife and kid like this is the I, I think you said it best. We were chatting about this. You were like, why would you play the lottery to win the lottery to never be able to acknowledge like not just tell people, but like, how are you going to hide this <laughs> from your family? You got to see this costume is, and it's like this yellow, I don't know, raindrop thing. I, I'm not sure exactly <laughs> what it is. I can't describe it. It's really funny looking. But if I if I'm his or if I am a wife and child who lives in that area of China and my husband was missing for a window of two hours when this check was collected. <laughs> I'm searching all the closets for this yellow nonsense <laughs> costume because I'm going to find out, man, that it, there's got to be a way. Yeah. She's like, uh, honey, what is this $65 charge at Spirit Halloween? <laughs> Don't worry about that. Several hours before the $30 million jackpot <laughs> was collected. Like oh. this is our, our PSA. I, I know our listener count in China isn't what it is in India or the U.S. or even um Belgium or Costa Rica for that matter. But <laughs> if you're listening in China right now, you got to check those receipts. All right. That's what we want you to do. So the guy is giving some money to charity, which is awesome. Props on that. And then it sounds like what's he doing with the rest? He's just sitting on it. Is he ever going to spend it? Do we know? I mean, he has to spend it as if he's embezzling because <laughs> You know, you can only spend like a penny at a time if you're really trying to hide $30 million from your family. Like, you, like what are you going to do? You're going to up your Netflix subscription from the like unpaid tier to the paid tier or from the uh, like uh, ad tier, you know, to the, the non-ad tier. Like you, you can't really spend the money. He hasn't thought this one through. <laughs> he and I appreciate this, too. It, what's that show in the U.S. that's all about um, basically the lotto destroying people's lives? Um, I forget oh, what it's no. called, but well, there's one called Lotto Dream Home, which is kind of hilarious because it's right after people win the jackpot, then they shop for a house with them. And the taste of, you know, someone living meagerly and then all of a sudden they have $30 million for a home is like, it's just hilarious. It's this mismatch almost always of uh, tastes. It's like, I want the fanciest set of Twinkies over here. It's It's lovely. <laughs> All right, but, let's get let's get into the fish bowl. Let's get into the fish. Bowl. Come on, you don't like my Twinkie talk? All right, let's. In. Uh, you want to kick off? You want me to kick off? Well, I want to bring. Yeah, I'll kick off. I I want to bring a conversation we were having in the pre-show meeting uh, to the pod just because I think it's interesting. Um, those who have listened to this show for a while know that we've uh, debated both Meta and Alibaba on the way down, right? And Alibaba is even the more interesting one, but they're both just fascinating right now. So Alibaba first made news in the value investing community when Munger took a position. And honestly, this is from memory. I think he took a position at around 180 bucks a share. And he did so with leverage, right? So this just ruffled some feathers. And he's commented on it a couple of times like, whatever, I'm an old man in my 90s. I can do whatever I want. When people push back on why did you take out leverage and What's the idea behind Alibaba? We've talked about his investment hypothesis, which at a high level is simply the two largest economies in the world need to get along. It's in everyone's interest. And if they get along, Alibaba has massive potential. Um, it has massive potential anyway, because it kind of is a Facebook or Amazon for the world outside of like the Western world. Alibaba is a lot of that infrastructure, yep. right? Yep, yep. And China's a huge growth market. Those other Southeast Asia markets are still huge growth markets. Like there's there's potential there. So it's an intriguing stock. It peaked at around $320 a share. This week it was tr trading as low as $60 a share. It bumped at the end of the week. It's back to $70 a share. Is any of that important? Not really. But I think 
I wanted to talk about how you're thinking about this stock right now because it's fascinating to me. I have I have a few thoughts on this. I think there are a lot of headwinds in the stock. And by headwinds, I mean there are things that are against the stock's appreciation. Um, and the thing with these headwinds is any of them could turn at any moment. So they're 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 not necessarily headwinds that are long term or complete brick walls by any means, or but they they could turn into something disastrous, so they could be pretty feeble. Examples. You have President Xi, who more and more is talking about how he wants to spread the wealth across the entire country, like a prosperous China for everybody versus it accumulating in individuals or companies. You have, let's stick with Xi for a second, you have the zero COVID policy that's sitting in, sitting in China, uh, which means that there's less people going out and spending and all that kind of stuff. You have... Uh, the U.S., what you mentioned, the U.S.-China relationship and potentially this stock not being allowed to be owned by Americans. Right? So mm-hmm. you, you just have it. There are a few headwinds that are sitting out there in each of those like any day now. Right. There was a there was a screenshot this week taken on. I don't know what somewhere from the Internet that got that hit social media that someone said, oh, look at this screenshot that like my uncle Billy took. That shows that the COVID restrictions might loosen up and Chinese stocks went up like 10%. Like it's, this is how, this is how like either strong they could be or feeble, like some of these headwinds could be, which makes the stock really volatile. So that's like contextually kind of where I'm sitting with it. What do you, what are your yeah, thoughts what on I, that? No, I totally agree. I just see the, the positive side of those potential headwinds more yeah. than the negative side, because if the stock was at $320 a share when when no one in the value investing community owned it like those were all you, you it's more easy to see the negative side when the stock's at 60 bucks a share i have a, a graph in front of me just to provide some visual context for folks it ipo'd like in the 80s if i remember right it's low in like 2016 was at 65 this thing's trading lower than ipo did ipo'd in um, 2000 or 2014 in 2014 its revenue per share was approximately four bucks now it's almost fifty dollars per share like it's an entirely different company than it was the last time it tra- traded at these prices is there a lot of risk here is there a reason it's being down absolutely but this thing is dirt cheap by almost any metric you look at it and this is where i don't do we want to get into this fight on the pod let's try it sure okay this is an example So as we've seen, as we said in the past, options are very risky, should not be touched under any circumstance. Ellipsis. This is one of those occasions where did your your eyes just roll to the back of your face just now? (laughs) I think they might have. This is one of those occasions where I'd say, for me personally, I went, the options play here feels like it makes the most sense, even just academically or conceptually. And I say that because the a lot of the downside has been priced in, not all, but a lot mm-hmm. of the downside has been priced in. It's so far from the upside right now. Like there's so much upside potential because it's been beaten down. And there theoretically over the next four months, those some of those headwinds that I just mentioned could be like gone in a flash, and the vol the upside volatility of the stock in that occasion is, I mean, as my good friend Bradley Cooper said, limitless. He never said that. He's he in a movie, but he, he might have no, said it. Uh, I gosh, I just hate options. I think this is a terrible idea, but maybe people like us being mad at each other, so let's just go for it. Uh, think okay options for someone who doesn't know the easiest way to equate it is like sports betting it's it's sports betting like you say this is going to happen and then if it happens you make a nice return if it doesn't happen you don't you lose all your money all of that bet um this is whatever the undefeated patriots team in the super bowl against the new york giants where like it seems highly likely that the Patriots are going to win. They're 18 and 0. They have superior talent, everything else. Well, they lost that game. And then all the people that said this is a no-brainer bet walked away with zero. I just I totally understand what you're saying because 
it does feel like it's been beaten down so much and there's there's four or five things that if any of those potential like if there's a sniff of positive news the thing just explodes because people go wait seriously it it's revenue is 50 bucks a share and the thing's trading in the 60s like <laughs> a stock yeah. with this potential in the yeah. world's effectively the world's largest market in terms of people in southeast asia which is growth with not a great formal competitor it's not like this is Silicon Valley in the US where you have the Apples and the Googles and all these massive tech companies with so much capability. I totally get it. I just I just can't get comfortable with options. Yeah. Yeah, which is I which I think is fully understandable. I mean, we talked about this a lot. Their options are really risky. People shouldn't touch them. And most of the time when people are playing with well, maybe I shouldn't say this. Most of the time when I hear people are playing with options, it's like Earnings are coming out next Thursday. Am I going to bet that on the upside or the downside? And it's within yeah. like a week or something, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, so th- I think this is slightly different, but it's still, I both sides of this, like I think my my argument on the like theoretical academic side, like makes conceptual sense, I believe, and I I also understand well, where you want to hate that. I love the academic the academic argument here. If you're <laughs> Gosh, we might have to try and do a study about this. If we could find equities with uh, similar pullbacks, with uh, similar growth, because it's not like this pulled back because the stock stopped selling products or, um, you know, like the three-year growth trends, the five-year growth trends are just spectacular. It's effectively still a growth stock that's priced like a value stock. Um, Maybe we should look into that contextually let me while we're on that subject just because i find it interesting talk to you about meta which is facebook because it's actually had a somewhat similar trajectory stock peaked at gosh it looks like somewhere around 382 it's currently trading at 90 bucks a share i mean this this fall from grace (laughs) is a pretty impressive one it's zuckerberg should give himself a pat on the back for this right (laughs) Hey, you couldn't architect this like if you if you tried a business with the like cash flow generation that they have with the growth historic growth trajectory that they have like this is it's a quick fall from grace. Well, do you remember when um, the some people in Congress or the Senate were like, "Yeah, we should put special restrictions on really big tech firms. Yeah. Maybe yeah. if their market cap is more than six hundred billion," and the and uh, Meta's. Facebook at the time, but Meta's market cap was like right at that threshold, maybe over. I know, I, and then, I want to say it might have been closer to a trillion at that point. I should I should pull that up. Anyway, their market cap today is two hundred and forty billion. They did great. <laughs> they got under that threshold. Yeah, yeah exactly. Substantially. Yeah. And actually, that's right. Just on the just back of the envelope math, it's down almost seventy five percent. So it, its market cap was pushing a trillion. Like, <laughs> yeah. and this this earnings season overall, and I know you. You don't care about things like earnings and cash flow and other fundamentals, so you don't look at financials. But this earnings season, that's a joke. You That's all you do. But you don't care about the short-term stuff. This yeah. earnings season, I think, is so much fun. Usually earnings seasons are fairly boring. But this earnings season, because of the state of the market's in, I think is a lot of fun. And the investors are saying, we do not care about what you've done historically. It's what have you done for me lately. They are straight Janet Jackson up in this piece. And if you do not show investors exactly what they want to see or better, you're donezo. And it's fascinating to see the seeing with the quicks, Amazon, right? Got cut like 20% after hours. I mean, this is yeah. these are like big old companies. Meta, it had its 25% earnings hit, uh, what, six months ago, whatever, a couple earnings, a couple quarters mm-hmm. ago. And then one mo again, I mean, investors is ruthless right now. Well, uh, you say ruthless. I think they're idiots. I mean that. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, I, I think your average investor is uh, that's too harsh. Just emotional is what I'd say. I just pulled up the the Facebook market cap. I mean, it, yeah, it was well over a trillion dollars in market cap, and <laughs> it's two hundred forty billion now. Yeah. This is a company that last year generated almost forty billion dollars in free cash flow. That means after they pay all the bills. 
after they give their stock options, after everything, they just have $40 billion sitting around to be like, oh, what should we do with this? It's crazy to me. Um, So when, gosh, what was that, Dougals? Two or three weeks ago when Meta comes out and says, we're seeing some softness here and some softness there. And and we have some concerns about our business model. The stock goes down 25% that day. That's people not, in my eyes, that's people overreacting and people being way too emotional about one specific quarter. Well, I like to own stocks for years and decades. Like, what does one quarter matter? It doesn't. It doesn't really matter at all. Yeah. Um. There's. We talked with Baba about the potential positive hits. There's. There's a crazy one with Meta, in my opinion. There's some buzz that TikTok might get banned in the U.S., which would hurt U.S. Chinese relations even more. But um, a lot of the U.S. social media companies are banned in China. And so there's definitely precedent there. If TikTok gets banned in the US, how is that a, not a massive win for Meta and Instagram and Facebook? Like it, it just has to be, right? I don't know what has to be anymore. Like I, I, I really don't. But it would, it would make sense because people, it's not like folks are done with all the things that involve social media, which Facebook has copies of all those products right anyway with what reels whatever and so i would think so it's just that to to part of your point there's so much emotion and irrationality that exists right now that i don't i don't know what people they're gonna go back to ford right they're gonna be like you know what if tiktok is uh is banned i'm gonna buy ford stock like does that make any sense no but it seems like that's what people are doing so i don't know but your, your logic does make sense i just don't think people are being logical the last thing I'll mention here is uh, Strategery, which is Ben Thompson's thing, did a really nice breakdown on meta fundamentals and compared it to some of the things happening in 2017. That earnings call that everyone freaked out about, he highlights some of the things that got overlooked. That They're going on nearly 3 billion users across all their platforms. What's the population of this earth, Dougals? Is it still 7 billion? I mean, are, is it seven? Like, it might be eight. I don't know. Half, half ish of the world is using their products. That's insane. Yeah, we can it, move it's, on. It's, it's just... a, oh, sorry, but um, oftentimes in like the venture capital and startup world, people will come in and they'll say, there's this massive market. And if I only got 1% of it, like my company would be huge. It's called the, like the, the 1% of China fallacy is like kind of yeah. what it's called. But when you have half the world, I mean, that, that is, it's not a, like, can you imagine walking into a pitch session and being like, okay, hear me out. <laughs> I, we're going to yeah. get half the world to use our product. <laughs> yeah, exactly. yeah, just like no big deal. No, hold on. But our stock will probably hold be on. down 75% this year. Daily. <laughs> like, <laughs> it's, it's not. A... Oh, let's not forget to mention, Diggles, as we, like, there's still a billion or 2 billion people that don't even have internet. So like (laughs) you could be talking about more than half the world's internet users. The last thing that I found interesting, I just say, read this strategy piece because this is a fascinating one for me. Um, Recently, Apple implemented their app tracking transparency policy, which was really bad for Facebook's business model. It made their ROI on advertisements on the platform less efficient. Well, he claims that there's, uh, some loophole that Facebook is going to exploit where they basically get that same information, but they jump through a couple hoops to meet Apple's policy. And and they are building that from the ground up using artificial intelligence, which is an interesting point that I had never heard anyone make before. Um, because when that first happened, Facebook said, this is a $10 billion hit to our revenues this year and for the foreseeable future. If you find a way to jump through that, it's another potential positive hit on the right side. Anyway, enough about Facebook, enough about Baba. What is in your fishbowl? But not enough about earnings. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. Sorry. It's just, it's fascinating to me. Uh, and this is another, I'm going to bring up something else that you hate. So this week, a Twilio, which those longtime listeners will know my love for this, this organization. Twilio announced their third quarter or- earnings. They beat on the revenue side, beat on the earnings side, doesn't matter. Their stock got hit 
at some point it was down 40% the next day. All right. Now, whether in the long term, the long term, this could prove to be right. And Twilio is a whole bunch of nonsense and is going to zero, right? Or it could prove to be wrong. We don't know. But just on the the irrationality like side of it, the reason why it's getting hit so hard is because there's this this and this is the it's like the skippy argument to the core is the market is saying, show me that you can generate cash. Like, I have to see that you can generate positive free cash flow like that. That's basically what the market's saying. And Twilio is not yet uh, like, I'd say, sustainably profitable and they are not generating positive free cash flow. Yes. And right now, like the stock is something like 30% over its IPO price from six years ago. That was a point where the company had $270 million in revenue. It is now approaching $4 billion in trailing 12-month revenue. Now you could say back then it wasn't it wasn't valued correctly and it was overvalued, right? You could, there's there's so many arguments here, but I'm just like, if you let me say this, if you believe in the trajectory of the company, it is wildly cheap right now yep. and getting hit by like 40% in a day after uh, like a, a, I think it was a 33% revenue increase year over year. I mean, it's just like, it's a, it's, it's, it's wild, but they do have to figure out, I'm, I can go very nerdy here. They do have to figure out their, uh, uh, their cost structure. And specifically, this is one of those occasions where stock-based compensation is like, crushing them right yeah. um in a lot of ways so there's a lot to figure out but you know i love this company and so i got real jolly like real jolly when i saw this thing hit 40 percent. it sucked for my brokerage account <laughs> like it was not good for my brokerage account but i was thinking about 2046 doogles and i went 2046 doogles is excited because i got my hvac stocks that are taken off i got twilio's taken off so you heard it here first 2046 you know the that brings up one thing. We should probably talk Twitter because it's interesting <laughs> what Musk is doing there. But this, I don't think this is the case with Twilio. But sometimes when you are just looking at revenue growth, I know you've done a deep dive on this. Uh, some products and like Uber and Lyft could have been an example of this. You're giving away free or heavily discounted products, which are incredibly costly for you. And then your revenues go way up and everyone goes, well, this is the future, but it's like, and they lose <laughs> yeah. uh, hundreds of millions or billions of dollars a year, right? But you have to eventually break that cycle. And that's why I usually wait until I see consistent profitability because it just gives me more peace of mind. But that's kind of what you're saying, right? It, they're going to have to figure out their cost structure. They're going to have to bring that down. And when they flip that switch, uh, the prospects are juicy yeah but the the people there yeah if i'd still argue people are being irrational when the earnings come in again this is one earnings event they happen four times a year (laughs) and dozens of times over decades like when one earnings event causes the stock to go down 40 percent yeah uh i think people are usually overreacting and on i'm gonna vastly oversimplify here for a second but on your uh, like revenue versus earnings point and just showing what the market has been valuing for the last few years. So Twilio's high price, which was roughly a year, year and a half ago, right? Was about 10, a little over 10x, 10 or 11x where it is right now. It's dropped by 90%. So it's like 10 or 11x over where it is right now. And as I mentioned, if you go back in time, it's revenue like 10 or 11x what it was when it was last valued like yeah. around where it is right now and so you can just like see the mentality of the market shift in that vastly oversimplified view is that mm-hmm. we were we were valuing like top line growth top line growth top line growth and now hardcore saying like show me all the cash or you will get none of mine it's fun that's what i said like six months ago i yeah. I, yeah. I love companies with a cash backstop where you go i and honestly i think Meta's one of these, even though Meta's recent earnings is disastrous and their free cash flow is declining. But it's like, you know, the thing can't go too much cheaper because all of a sudden you're like, well, look at the cash they have in the bank and look at the cash that they can generate easily for the next two years. Like that, you get a formal cash backstop. And I think when people freak out, they just lean on that so much more than the more glamorous metrics like revenue. 
All right. I'm going to move us off earning season. Is that okay? Yeah. All right. I'm going to, but I'm going to, gosh, John, I said I'm moving us off, of, but I'm about to talk about something I talk about all the time anyway. I'm going to reach into the fishbowl and I want to talk about consumer credit just for like a minute or two. I don't think we have to spend much time here because we talked about it in the past, but I am consistently concerned with the state of consumer finances in the country and the trajectory that we have. And maybe like a month or two ago, we were, I, I brought up uh, the buy now, pay later, like amount of debt that's, that's increasing. And you rightfully said, okay, yeah, that's increasing, but is it really cannibalization? of other debts or or is it more cumulative yeah i mean i'm concerned for you because you seem to be worrying so much about other people's finances diggles like do you have time to worry about your own or <laughs> no i know i know mine are going to the toilet there's no one needed to worry <laughs> you're yeah. like really concerned about when you see someone else uh swipe their credit card at dollar general are you like hey let's talk balances here what's your interest rate on that you don't know how many risks i've grabbed before they try to to swipe their credit card. First of all, when you're buying your dollar band-aids, don't swipe the credit card. Why not? I mean, it just it's it's costly for everybody. I it's okay. true, but okay, I always use on. my credit card me, at Dollar General. That's okay, all right, all right. Let me get back to this. So we talked about that, and you're like, what's happened to the credit overall? So total card balances in the US are now at $916 billion. This is September figures, which is almost exactly what it was in December 2019. So it's hitting pre-pandemic levels. That's the important point is like we large majority of Americans got checks for a significant period in COVID and bank balances, consumer credit looked like they had never looked before. Generally, people had more money in their savings account and less credit card debt than they had had. Like it was off the chart effectively. Yeah. And now we're right back where we started. Exactly. If you look at the the personal savings rate as a percentage of disposable income, according to this Wall Street Journal article, it was 26.4% in the second quarter of 2020. So the amount that people were saving as a percent of disposable income, 26% then. It's now at 3%, 3.3 to be exact, a little bit over 3%. So that's dropped to the lowest level since the late 1940s. And balances are up 23, they're 23% higher than the pandemic low, which was in April of 2021. So people are continuing to spend. Um, that That's the primary concern that I have uh, in conjunction with the number of people that were like um, either quitting their jobs or whatever it might be. So I'm just like concerned with cash flows. There was, I wouldn't call it silver lining, but there was like a, a question mark that was thrown out in the article, which was um, people were also using a lot of, which this can get you into trouble, using a lot of like 0% balance transfers and 0% APR for 18 months after you open the account. So whether or not they're paying high interest rates on this is different, but it was saying that people might feel more comfortable holding onto their balances versus paying them down because they have 0% interest rate. I think, I think that can get dangerous, but. Yeah, that's not good. When you, you said balances, um, like a minute ago, and I just want to clarify, you meant credit card balances, right? Not savings yeah, account balances. Yeah, okay. credit card balances. Yeah, um, it's something to watch. I mean, it all makes sense, right? Things are more costly than they used to be. Wages increased, but not a not more than your typical inflation rates. So people effectively took uh, pay cuts in terms of the amount of real purchasing power that they have, and Americans don't save. It, unfortunately, yeah. like they, that they did COVID for period quarter. is a huge anom anomaly. They were like, we have some checks and we don't know what to do with them. Uh, but people figure out how to spend money. <laughs> that, 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 we're very good at that. I mean, if Johnny Depp really, if we go back to last week and Johnny Depp really spends $50,000 a month on wine. Oh man. Can we get a financial advisor <laughs> over there? Someone to grab his wrist when he's at Dollar General. Yeah, seriously. <laughs> Steal his credit card already. Is there anything else like consumer debt? Because I want to no, talk no, one no. more thing that's tangentially related. So the Goldman Sachs Global Investment Research does a confidence board survey with CEOs. And they do a six-month look ahead for basically a confidence survey. This just came out last week, I believe. I'm looking at something that was posted November 2nd. And 
it is the lowest figure in terms of confidence that's been measured since 1985. Yeah. The previous four lows are 91, 02, uh, 2009, and 2020, right in the heart of COVID. And the CEO confidence index is below all of those figures. On yeah. a, It goes basically between a scale of 1 to 100, and it's about 27. <laughs> this is drastic. <laughs> yeah. Now, I'll cut to the chase. We don't make predictions on the show. Forecasts are typically dumb, but... All those previous periods, when it's been this low, stocks have rebounded shortly thereafter because it is, it's the peak moment of pessimism. So that's why I bring it up because it's interesting to monitor. It seems like the leaders of major companies in the US is about as low as it's been. Um, and you're seeing that. You know, we, I mentioned Twitter earlier. Twitter's layoffs are not directly related to the economy, but you're seeing these tech companies where layoffs haven't been almost an option go through pretty significant layoffs. Um, it seems like people are taking serious action to try and ride out the storm in a way that I don't really remember in the last decade. It's the, and it's a, the unknown storm is what is most concerning to folks as there, there there's this feeling that something big and bad is potentially around the corner. And because of the quote unquote unprecedented time that we're in, I don't know what that is. I just know that it's bad. Like that, that that's kind of like what's sitting in many folks' heads right now, I feel. You're not saying you, you're saying the typical CEO. Yeah. Is like, I yeah. don't know what yeah. I don't know yeah. what's happening in January or February, but it's not gonna be good. Yeah. Now I don't is know there... if that's a reason that you cut half of your workforce. <laughs> Elon. I haven't seen remember Twitter like a decade ago when it would always say we're over capacity and it'd have the little birds trying to pick up the whale. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's what I'm expecting Twitter for the next three weeks. Is like, sorry, we don't we don't have it in place to do that anymore. So I I read this uh sorry, sticking on Twitter for one sec. Is that cool? Yeah. Yeah. I read this blog post by uh, DHH. I can never really remember his name's David Hansen Hennemeyer. That's not his name, but it's something like that. He's the uh, creator of Ruby on Rails. He's the um, CTO and co-founder of Basecamp slash 37 Signals. Um, and so he's very well regarded in the tech community for his tech prowess and then generally has pretty strong perspectives that are different than what other people have. And so his writing is interesting to me. Anyway. He, he was writing about, he wrote a blog post about Twitter and it was, it was called something like the pace of like pace setting, something like that. And what he was saying is like how important setting expectations around pace is to any company that like you, you, you have to say, um, this is how we operate. This is like, this is how quickly we, we create and produce features. These are the expectations and he goes, and people become pretty clear around what pace they need to like what pace they need to be at at the company or else, you know, it's not going to work. And when there's clarity, like it helps people to set their own expectations, et cetera. So what he said was like, they, he described what they have at Basecamp. And then he said, I don't believe in the pace that like Elon talks about working at. Like, he's like, I don't think people should be sleeping on the floor. I don't think everyone needs to be in the office. He's a very remote, like Basecamp's always been distributed. I don't think people need to sleep in the office, all that kind of stuff. And he said, but when he described one uh, Twitter, like former Twitter designer that they'd hired at his company. And he said the Twitter designer said that they'd worked at Twitter for two years and never shipped anything like during that time. And he's like, so I don't believe in Elon's full piece. But when when you have a like, if that is their culture, you have to like just completely electroshop therapy, I think is what he said. <laughs> like what's going on there if you want it to become like a productive place. And I just I found that to be interesting. I think those are those are extremes. I have uh, I have some <laughs> buddies at Twitter, some who yeah. some who are impacted. So thoughts, guys, yeah. and uh, holler if we can help. But uh, my sense of the culture was not quite that laid back. Um, is definitely a great place to work for a lot of people, but that's changed. And uh, I think I said this before. I'm happy. Elon did not buy my company because I'm not ready for the culture shock that he's putting Twitter through. But 
if he wants to pay $44 billion for it, we can talk. So hit me up, Elon. <laughs> yeah, fully agreed. Um, and I hope that like what I said didn't sound too crass. Um, I, no. I thought it was like an interesting thought piece. His, by the way, Basecamp, he said what they do is uh, if there's something that is going to take longer than six weeks to put out, it gets canceled. Like that, that's the the like expectation they have, which I think that was the contrast. Like even if everyone doesn't have the two year experience, it's like the fact that if that's true, so I'm going to assume that that's true for that designer. If that's true, he's saying even that being possible, even if it's not the norm is yep. like a thing. But regardless, I find his writing to be interesting. Fully agree. Fully, fully agree. So did you get in, uh, I sent you a podcast this week from Freakonomics that asked the question, if personal finance gurus are giving us bad advice, did you manage to make it through that? No, no, I didn't. I really wanted to, but I didn't get to it. So this is so interesting. I think I'll just plant the seed and and send our listeners there if they're uh, interested. It has a Yale economist break down the 50 most popular personal finance books and try and come up with an analysis of one, if they all say the same thing, because they don't <laughs> cut to the chase. Like there's a, to make a popular personal finance book, you can have conflicting advice between, you know, like the number one book and the number two book can take completely different things. So that's interesting. This guy at Yale was fascinated with it. But uh, what I loved about this episode is it has the economists and then it, they got Morgan Housel, um, who we like and has one of the most popular. Uh, personal finance books out there, um, the psychology of money, and and they kind of went back and forth around what's right, and oh, man, the economist just sounded so lost. He got, in my opinion, he got uh, lost in one of the debates they have is uh, should your average person, if they buy a home, uh, have a fixed rate mortgage or an adjustable rate mortgage, and. The economist did this really fancy analysis where he said, you know, I, I'm simplifying here, but 93% of the time your average consumer would benefit from having an adjustable rate mortgage. And here's why. And here's how inflation 10 years later matters for that. Like this really sophisticated analysis. And they said, so in the community you run in, when you go to an economics conference and you guys talk personal finance, do the other economics professors have an adjustable rate mortgage? And he goes, no, no one, no one does that. It's too complex. Like no one actually pulls out the spreadsheet. And I'm like, you answered your own question there. Yes. It's like it, it, this is not how people behave with money is so rarely. Let's do an unemotional analysis on a spreadsheet. And almost always let's use rule of thumbs that help people uh, work through their emotions, give them peace of mind to sleep at night. And so you don't make these decisions based on, oh, this will save me three cents in seven years. You make this decision on <laughs> yeah. set it and forget it. And this gives me comfort. And that's what Morgan was largely saying is like, yes, this might actually cost you 10 more bucks, but it makes your life better or it makes your life simpler or it sets up a way where your brain can actually handle, you know, like, it understands the analysis. So if you're interested in that, I'd give the episode a listen because I think it's pretty solid that way. Uh, thank you for sharing that. I am going to give it a listen. Uh, I really meant to this week. I'm going to give it a listen. And it reminds me of a couple other things that I'll touch on briefly. One is a, a nerd analysis that I did. And this is, uh, we were, maybe, I can't remember, it was a few episodes ago. We were talking about someone, who was it? Hustleman? What's the, the who you've been, Hussman. Who you've been, yeah, Hussman. J.P. Yeah, Hussman. Yeah, so we were talking about J.P. Hussman and uh, being able to predict uh, bear markets, right? Like the, the idea of being able to predict bear markets. So I ran this analysis, which is only for academic purposes, but looked back to January 1926 and said, if you looked at dollar cost averaging versus being able to like perfectly predict, predict the bottoms of bear markets. And so in one world, every month you put a dollar into the market, like no matter what, beginning of the month, you put a dollar into the market, right? And I said, what would that dollar be worth uh, at the end of September, 2022 from January, 1926? Or if instead of putting the dollar in the market, you put the dollar under your mattress. And when it was the bear market bottom, you took all the dollars you collected and you threw them into the market. 
if you did that starting in January 2026, what would that be worth uh, at the end of September? And what's interesting is, so at the end of September for the dollar cost averaging, like $1 every month, you'd have $1.6 million, roughly. In the other world where you perfectly predicted bear market bottoms, you'd have $1.9 million. So there's an 18% difference, right, in the two. The reason that this just reminded me of that is because you go, okay, 18% is 18%. You'll take it. Yeah, yeah. The mental anguish and complexity and impossibility. Impossibility, of, yeah. Of being able to do that, like, is just, it's only academically interesting because a human being, like, it doesn't make any sense, right? Just, if this came, just keep it simple. Exactly. Yeah, just dollar cost average in and call it good. Exactly. This, um, it, like, this reminds me, Wes Gray and the folks at Alpha Architect have this article that says, um, even God would be fired as a portfolio manager. And the gist is like, they looked at the best stocks over a five-year period and they said, okay, we're going to go back in time. We know the future. We're going to buy those stocks and then we're going to watch what the portfolio does. And it's so volatile, especially the first couple of years that in a lot of those cases, you're down like 30% two years later. And that's when as a portfolio manager, you get fired let alone that that person that fired you would have the best performing basket of stocks humanly possible if they just can wait for 36 more months, but they absolutely can't. Yeah. Keep it simple, man. With personal finance, keep it simple. That's it's such a, such a hard truth. I love it. All right. So one thing I got here is the Washington post. I think actually I saw this in a number of different um, publications, but Washington post had an article that was talking about the drop in labor productivity that's happening right now. And it's pretty massive uh, in comparison to historicals. So they look at the non-farm business sector and what the change in output is. And we discussed before the like GDP, if you put it simply, is growth in population times the productivity of that population. And so this is, I know, but you know, if you put no, it simply. Yeah. And so where uh, so looking at productivity, it's like productivity is important because you need to be able to look into the future and say that people can be more productive so we can create more and, you know, growth can continue. And the speculation in this article is like, why the heck is this happening? There are a number of reasons, hypotheses that we could see why this is dropping. But it, it went into a number of the factors that we've discussed over and have been discussed over the past year, year and a half around uh, quiet quitting and complacency and was the the surge in productivity that folks saw in the pandemic and claiming that you're more efficient at home. Is that real? How do you really measure like a quote unquote knowledge workers productivity, right? Like it just, it, it's, I just, I think that the, uh, it's fascinating, like the whole space, what this number was, and this is the second quarter in a row um, that had negative growth. The number was negative 4.1% uh, drop in, in productivity. Uh, and yeah, I'm, I'm just like, I think that this combines with uh, you. We were talking about the CEO sentiment, but previously we also talked about consumer sentiment. And I think people right now just aren't particularly motivated. <laughs> that's that's if this is a real number. That's yeah, like I'm sure that's what I'd say. Yeah. Well, I mean, uh, I know I know it's real according to the calculation, but if this is the right way to calculate it in today's age, I don't know. But regardless, well, bear with me. Let's let's just assume that it is because it, at least it's consistent going back to two thousand. So. It, it's out of trend when you look at things that have happened the past 22 years. Um, I'm going to talk my book here. Like when I was during COVID and when my office closed down and the leadership team met endlessly, it seemed, to talk about the ramifications to efficiency in our office. I always said, and it was just a hunch of mine, this works great for 18 to 24 months. And then the lack of like rubbing elbows in the office is going to catch up with us. I think that's a decent hypothesis here because there was this initial bump, right? When everyone wanted to prove to their manager that they could be as efficient working from home because no one likes sitting in a car for 30 to 45 minutes to drive into the office, you know, to sit in a cube and, and do that sort of thing. And people had pre-existing relationships there wasn't much turnover happening at that time. So it it kind of went off without a hitch. Now, 
Um, there's been a lot of employee turnover in the past 12 months, maybe more. The great resignation or the great reshuffling, as it's been called, right? And now people have settled into their current routine. They no longer feel like it's really important to prove to their boss that they can work from home if they're still working from home. I think that could play a large role in what's happening here. There was something that they talked about in the article around the the where the labor market is and the leverage that workers have. And that depends on the worker and the company and all that. There's like, that's a very broad statement. But generally speaking, saying if you go back three years ago and it could have been, well, if you don't do this job, I can replace you. And now you're saying, uh, actually, can you, I think the way, the way they stated it in the article, I don't have this in front of me, but it was something like, uh, where it used to be one strike, you're out now it's 10 strikes. And like, can you still stick around a little longer? (laughs) Right? Like, um, and yeah, um, I, I do think that plays a role, but what, yeah, I, I think there's a lot of truth, um, in what you're saying and like the compounding value of, of trust and relationships. And I don't think you have to be in the office to do that, to be honest, but no, I think I that, don't either, but I, I think that the 95% of, of companies didn't know or don't know how to do it, not in the office. And so I think it's it's that like we haven't figured out actually how to do it well. Um, and I do, I think that working from home, working remotely, uh, it can be naturally conducive to like getting work done more efficiently, not as naturally conducive to figuring out what work to do and working yeah. together to figure that out and not as naturally conducive to relationship building, especially new relationship building for what you were saying. Yeah, I I don't want this to turn into work from home versus work from the office debate. I agree with all the things you're saying. I think if you're in a remote environment, it just takes more effort to forge those relationships. Um, The other thing, I I volunteer for uh, a nonprofit in education, and the buzz recently has been the drop in uh, student math scores. And a lot of people just go, "Uh, COVID, life kind of sucked for 24 months. It's natural. Like, there could be some of that happening here that people are just fatigued and worn out. It, it's been a rough two years and productivity productivity has suffered because of it. So I see a parallel yeah, there, which yeah. is potentially interesting. Yeah, I think that's right. That's all I got. All right, guys. Uh, I hope you enjoyed this week. If you missed last week's, it was a unique episode for us. We had uh, like a, a non-investing guest. Um, we had David Marks on. You might go back and give that a listen. Because uh, it's something out of the mold, and and send feedback on episodes like that our way. We get mixed feedback typically when we had a guest. Some people just like our banter back and forth, and some people really like guests. So we'd love to hear from you on that. You can find all thanks for this show at skippydougals dot com. Twitter is at skippydougals. Listener mail is skippydougals at gmail dot com. And as I mentioned before, hit us with a review this week, and we'll send you some stickers if you let us know about it. Uh, thanks so much, guys.